bread and butter here at the Mission Church is that we like to pick a book of the Bible and then we just go through one verse at a time and we just take as much time as it takes to get through. Well, about a year or so ago, we chose the book of Hebrews to just begin and start trudging our way through and we're still in the book of Hebrews right now. We've gotten to chapter 8. We concluded chapter 7, and if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them and open to Hebrews chapter 8. But the last several weeks, we took a pause to do a topical sermon series uh, called Ecclesia. It's about the nature of the Christian church and what the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, the opening chapters, said about the Christian church, who we are, what we should be, what the church makes important, all those kinds of things. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I found it opportune for that topical sermon series to line up right when it did because I needed more time to prepare to preach through Hebrews chapter 8 through 10. It's one of the benefits when a church sets itself to just go through books of the Bible is that I, as a teaching pastor, can't just jump over the passages that I, I don't feel... I understand well enough yet, or maybe feel uncomfortable about for one reason or the other, just have to make our way through. So I um, bought a pile of books, and I, I read through a stack of books preparing for Hebrews 8 through 10, because the content we're going to get to is very significant, and it will determine a lot about the way that you view the Old Testament. It'll determine a lot about the way that you view the Ten Commandments. It may even determine a lot about who you think we should baptize today. And as we move forward in upcoming weeks, I hope to uncover exactly what I mean by some of this. But the way that we understand, the way that Hebrews 8 through 10 talks about covenants will be incredibly shaping for us. Our God, quite simply, is a God who makes commitments He actually commits himself to us. God, the creator of the universe, looks to us as his creatures. He makes promises with us, binds himself to those promises so much, in fact, that if he did not follow through with what he said, he would not be God. I teach my kids God can do all his holy will. What can God do? All his holy will. Will. It's important we say it that way because sometimes people say God can do anything. And that's the truth if, you, if you're meaning the right thing by that. But God cannot defy his own word. There's one thing God cannot do. The Lord cannot lie. The Bible says that. God commits himself to us. He makes promises and binds his very nature to what he promises he's going to do. You can go ahead and read through the Bible and you can see these pop up all throughout. In fact, we often call these promise agreements covenants. God makes a variety of these commitments, these loving covenants throughout the Bible. In fact, the first time you'll see the word covenant, if you're flipping through the Bible from beginning to end, comes in the book of Genesis at the story of Noah. Noah was the man chosen by God to build the ark, to put all animal kind and and his family on there to survive a global flood because of the wickedness of humanity. And when Noah gets off the ark, God establishes a covenant with him, and not just with Noah, but with all humanity, with the entire earth. He establishes a covenant with the earth. And do you remember what that covenant was? 
The covenant was that he will not, he promises, he will not yet again destroy the earth by water as he did in the days of the flood. That was a promise. And you remember what the sign of that covenant was to remind us whenever we see it that God made this promise? It was the rainbow in the sky. That bow that he took and fired at earth in wrath and anger, he hung in the sky with the arrow pointing straight up into the heart of heaven itself, no longer on earth. He made a covenant with us. He made a covenant with mankind and with all creation. Well, later, you keep going through the book, it's to the Bible, and you'll find this character named Abram. He's the one who will later be named Abraham. And that Abraham is, is given a covenant promised by God that he was going to take this old man with an elderly wife who was barren, and he was going to somehow turn this family into a multitude of nations, and that he was going to bless the world through the offspring that would come from Abraham. Later, God will make a covenant with his people in the days of Moses. He'll make a covenant with the people at Sinai, and he'll give promises to them and demand promises back. It would be a conditional covenant that they would have agreement with one another. And even later, God makes a covenant with King David. He makes a covenant with King David that someone in his line will rule as a king forever, will sit on the throne forever. These covenants are all throughout the entire Bible, and they're critical for us if we want to understand the way that God relates to his people. In fact, some have referred to the covenants as the backbone of the Bible. Because in every era of history, in every page of the Bible, Old and New Testament, the people are operating under a covenant with God. And which covenant they're operating under is dependent upon which part of the Bible you're opening up. Now, it should be said that there's lots of curiosity, questioning, even debates and disagreement between Christians throughout the centuries as to exactly how many covenants there really are in the Bible and how those covenants ought to relate with one another. An exhaustive understanding, though, of God's covenants with his people is not necessary to understand what's going on in Hebrews 8 through 10. But at the very least, it will be incredibly helpful for you to understand the nature of the Mosaic Covenant. Let me explain why this matters. What's going to happen in a passage we're not getting to today, we're going to go through the first six verses of Hebrews 8. But what comes, starting at verse 6 and beyond, is going to be a conversation, a dis- actually an exhortation to the people who are reading this, about the nature of the new covenant as distinct from the old. And so the author of Hebrews cares about two covenants, old and new. That's the way he's going to talk. He's going to keep driving that home. And for you and I to understand, what's he comparing here? We need to have some understanding of what that old covenant is. The old covenant that he's talking about here will be specified and clarified in verse 9 of chapter 8, where he says that this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. When the author of Hebrews talks about the old covenant, he's specifically referring to the Mosaic covenant. So quick review on that as we get going. Just last night, I was reading uh, through uh, in our little kid's Bible with my kids during our worship time, uh, the story of the burning bush. This is where Moses, who had fled out of Egypt, is in the wilderness. He's working as a shepherd, 
and he sees a burning bush that's burning, but the bush isn't, isn't, isn't being uh, burnt up. He walks over to this burning bush. He hears the voice of God speak to him from this bush. And the voice of God tells Moses that he has been chosen to go back to the people in Egypt and to bring them out from under Pharaoh's oppressive hand, out of slavery. And he says, God promised that he would do this. And he said, the sign that this that I'm telling you what's going to happen is that you're going to bring them back to this very same mountain. The place where that burning bush was, he's going to bring the people back there. And when they get to that mountain, God would establish a covenant with them. This covenant then begins with the Ten Commandments. And then a, then a law given to the people. God makes his people into a nation. He gives them priests. He gives them judges. He gives them, uh, he gives them an, an army. They literally can coordinate and organize together as an army. They get a system of worship and how they're supposed to be honoring to God and how they're supposed to live with one another rightly. And under this covenant, the people enter into the promised land. Now here's what's so important to remember. This covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is the covenant into which Jesus was born. You want to know what kind of rules, what kind of systems, what kind of worship, what kind of demands were placed on Jesus in his day? The Mosaic covenant. We call it the Mosaic covenant sometimes because Moses is the one who operated as the mediator between God and man. It's the Mosaic covenant. You can also call it by its place name because it took place at Sinai. So we can call it the Sinai Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant. It might be written sometimes to refer to that place. Others have referred to it as the Covenant of Works because it demands works from mankind. If you do this, you get this blessing. If you do this, you get this curse. Others just refer to it as the Covenant of Law because it certainly contains law. It's important to remember also that the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews are under the Mosaic Covenant. It's the way they're operating. It's the way they're living. And so the way that the author talks throughout this entire letter is he appeals to writings from the Old Covenant, from under that day. He points back to things in the Mosaic forms in order to say, look, I'm not making this up. It was in your law. He's coming with their Bible to show them from it what God had been telling them was going to come in Jesus. These Hebrews, they organized their days, their lives around the Mosaic Covenant. But the author is about to make it clear that the Old Covenant is fulfilled and finished in Jesus. Because he has come to establish and welcome them into a new and better covenant. The, the book of Hebrews mentions the word covenant 17 times. 14 of those are in these next three chapters. So we're going to be spending some time dealing with the nature of covenants for a while. Hope to answer as many questions as I can for you as we do this. But today we're just barely going to scratch the surface, the surface of what covenants are. This passage is going to summarize some things previously written, and it's going to touch on other things that will be unpacked more fully later. So today you're like, man, there's still a big looming question. I, I probably know what it is, and we're going to be getting into it in upcoming weeks. But what we first have to establish today, we have to see that the Old Covenant was never designed to be eternal. But it was designed to be a temporary agreement that pointed to something greater. 
If you have your Bibles with you, this we're going to go to Hebrews 8. And I'm going to have you guys follow along with me if you have your Bibles. If not, I'm going to put each of the verses up here in just a moment so you can follow along. Let's read and then I'll pray. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful for passages like this that even touch on rather difficult things sometimes. I pray that you would help me to unpack it well. I pray that you would help us to understand uh, the kind of audience and the kind of life, uh, the, the system of worship and religion that this first audience lived in so that we can best see what it is that this author has for us today. Lord, we love you and we trust you in your word. We don't trust ourselves. I don't trust myself. We need you, Lord, to help shape our thinking rightly. Help us to see what you have for us here. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The author has been making the case for the past couple of chapters here that Jesus holds a priesthood that is higher in authority than that of the high priest under the Old Covenant. You might remember that in the Old Covenant, Aaron was the one through whom we would see the priestly line. Aaron would have passed it to his son, who'd pass it to his son, who'd pass it to his son, and on down the line. Nobody who did not have the blood of Aaron in him could be a high priest. That was all it came down to. But this author shows us that there was a man named Melchizedek that lived during the days of Abraham that preceded Levi and his line, Aaron and his line, 400 years. And he said, just like that Melchizedek, who was a priest of a superseding higher order, Jesus is like that. And he says that the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. We have one. (laughs) Jesus is currently high priest. He is the high priest of the Christians. You can only have one. And we have him, and his name is Jesus. That's why the language right here says this. What we're saying is this, not there's this hope. There's this hope for something someday we're going to have. No, we have such a high priest. You see, the people he's talking to knew the need for a high priest. They knew they couldn't have peace with God apart from somebody who was going to perform the atoning sacrifices. They knew they needed someone to perform that function. They needed someone to mediate between God and men. And without that someone... They're in big trouble. Well, this author is saying, we have one. Right now we do. 
His name is Jesus. We are no longer like the Israelites of the Old Testament, looking forward to someone to fulfill the many promises written then. Jesus is currently reigning. He is currently ministering as our high priest, starting from right back then, from his ascension into heaven all the way into today. He supersedes, and he even overrides any other earthly priest. What else is implied here? is that there are no more Levites. Not that there's no more people on the bloodline of Levi, but that there's no need for anyone with any Levitical priesthood. Levitical priests have no authority under the new covenant. None. Their jurisdiction ends where Christ begins. You need a priest, you have one in Jesus. Those Levites who had been functioning and operating, working in the temple, doing all the things that they had been told to do under the law, even if imperfectly, Once Jesus completes his function as high priest, done. They are no longer needed. What else we see here? He's a greater high priest. Look at the way that it talks about Jesus. It's not just, hey, we have one. Don't worry, we've got a high priest. It's all set. We have a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That phrase or something like it is used three times in the book of Hebrews. One time it's just seated at the throne. Another time it's seated at the right hand of the majesty. This time it puts both together. Throne, majesty, heaven, all is there. Jesus is there, seated in that place of authority. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about the high priest, the the earthly high priest. Think of Caiaphas. Where did he sit? Well, he certainly didn't sit at anyone's right hand. Even in an earthly sense, he was not honored or considered in any high way by the local authorities even there. Remember, he was often despised. The office of high priest was despised by the Romans. In other words, the high priest in Jesus' day did not sit at the throne next to Caesar. He did not even sit next to Herod. He did not even sit next to Pontius Pilate. He was often despised. He was not acknowledged as any kind of authority in his day. Jesus, however, is seated at a throne, and not just an earthly one, a heavenly one. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28? He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, Jesus says. All authority, heaven and earth. He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And there's something kind of cool here going on also about the idea that he's even seated. If you were to look back at the floor plan given for the tabernacle, and for, that was the, the portable temple in its day, and then the temple, which was the permanent structure in its day, there were no seats in it except for one, the mercy seat, the place where God was supposed to dwell, the seat of God that was in the holiest of holies. In other words, no high priest would sit when he entered into that home. Why? When he entered into the house of God, why would the high priest not sit? He might be doing things all day long. Why? Because he's a servant, not a son. He stands to serve. He does the work and he leaves. It's not his house. It's God's house. When this says that this Jesus, that our high priest, is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, that's his home. That's his house. He's not just the servant, he's the son. 
this author is straining with his words to show the supremacy and the authority of Jesus that no other person ever has had or ever will have. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What's this true tent? Well, some have seen this as referring to the church. Others have seen this as referring to Jesus' human body, where the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus' body. But most commentators say, and I agree with them here in their, their logic, that this is referring, most likely, to the heavenly realm because of the way that it lines up with the other uh, references to sanctuary and tabernacle. It's the original temple, the true sacred place from which a tabernacle was patterned. If you ever read through the book of Exodus, you'll see that Moses was not just told, hey, come up with some good ideas for a tabernacle, a place to worship, and uh, just tell me what it looks like. I'll just rubber stamp it for you, and God just commissions him to do whatever. God gave Moses very explicit instructions. And you may even remember that back there it said that Moses had to literally design and have built this tabernacle after the pattern that he was shown on the mountain. That's actually going to come in just a couple of verses. We're going to see that in just, just a few verses here. But it's critical to realize that it wasn't just off the top of his head. It didn't just make sense to him. Moses didn't just like the colors purple and blue. It was actually something that God had told him to do. And we'll get to more of that in a couple of verses. Moving on to verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Consider the logic of what it's saying. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what high priests do. Gifts, sacrifices. Gifts is probably referring to the Old Testament uh, view, uh, uh, points where the high priest would have to give free will offerings, thanksgiving offerings, grain offerings, things like that that were not for atoning for sin. So they were gifts in that way. And sacrifices, which always were designed to in some way be to atone for sin. Blood. When blood was being let, it was for that reason. Animal sacrifice. That's what they're for. People needed priests to operate as mediators between God and men. That's what they needed. Sin needed to be dealt with. All the way back to the very first sin. Do you remember what God did after Adam and Eve sinned and he, and he expelled them from the garden? You remember what happened next? They had been covered with fig leaves, right? They'd covered themselves up so that they would hide their nakedness. And what did God do? Did he leave them in those? No. God covered their sin with a better covering. And what did he cover them with? The skins of an animal. This is implied back to the first few chapters of the Bible. Sin must be dealt with. And the only way to deal with sin, the only way to purify anything is by blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, who is the one to offer that sacrifice? The high priest. That's what he does. The priest would offer it on a daily basis to people, and the high priest would offer it on the Day of Atonement in a special and significant way, and he would offer, he would offer the sacrifices in a corporate sense for the people, collectively. This is the chief role that a priest has. This is why we ought not have priests any longer. That's actually kind of significant for us. You know that many religions have what they call priests. Uh, Roman Catholicism has priests. 
Uh, Mormonism has priests. There's priests of all kinds of different religions out there. And, and, and think about this even in the Roman Catholic sense, because there's lots of historical touch points for this, and maybe familiarity for you. They call their ministers priests, and they do that for a very specific reason. You know why the Roman Catholic uh, ministers are called priests? Because they consider the act of offering communion, the Eucharist, as a real sacrifice. That's what they think of it as. So every time they gather together for Mass, they sacrifice Jesus' body again. That's what they're imagining. That's what they actually think is taking place during that, that ceremony, that time. That's so ritually significant to them. And the person sacrificing Jesus again, offering that sacrifice as a priest. That's why they call them that. This is interesting because it's a correct use of the word, wrong understanding of the gospel. This is why in the Christian faith we don't use that term because we have a priest. The sacrifices that believers offer now are not blood sacrifices. We offer our lives to Jesus. Sacrifices of worship we offer to him. For this priest, also, uh, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. But what does that mean? It's necessary because if he's going to be a priest, he has to offer something. You're not a priest if you're not offering something. You're something else, but not a priest. So what makes him a priest? What is it that he's offering? Well, he offered himself. Jesus himself laid his own life down as the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He was the one giving the offering and the offering itself. Jesus satisfies and fulfills both in his perfect self. And you know why? Because not only do we need a sacrifice that's perfect, we need a sacrificer who's perfect. And Jesus is the only one who is perfect. We're going to get to this even much, much more in chapters 9 and 10. We start to see the way that the New Testament, the New Covenant sacrifice, ratified a new covenant in Jesus' blood. And what exactly that looks like. We'll, we'll be there in the next couple of weeks. But the author continues into verse 4. And he says, Now if he were on earth, Jesus, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest. And he wouldn't be a priest because they already have them who have a, a way they have to do this according to the law. Now, if you'd been with us when we walked through chapter 7, this was a couple of months ago, I think now, you'd see that chapter 7 makes it clear that Jesus did not qualify to be a priest under the Old Covenant law for at least two reasons. First, he was not from the line of Aaron. He was not from the line of Levi, so he, he, he did not have the pedigree necessary. And second, there was already a high priest. You remember at the end of that chapter, it says that when one high priest dies, the next one can take over, and then one dies, the next takes over. Well, there's a living high priest when he arrives, so there's no way he's going to be taking on that mantle. Those two reasons already. Let me just show you the summary of this in Hebrews 7, reading two verses, 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah... And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Get it? So the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Israel was Levi, another one was Judah. It was down through the line of Levi and eventually Aaron that priests would come. But through Judah, that wasn't a priestly line. In fact, if a Judahite were to go into the temple, he'd be put to death. There were times where a king in the line of Judah, so he's a Judahite, were to try to offer a sacrifice he wasn't allowed to. 
Do you remember King Saul, the first king of Israel all united, of Israel and Judah before they were split up? His great error, a great sin that he committed that made God reject him and turn him away is he was waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice. And he did it himself. Even as the king, he didn't have the authority to do that. And God rejected him because of it. I want you to notice something else about this verse here. Notice how this is written in the present tense about the priesthood. Just check that out. He would not be a priest at all. Jesus wouldn't be if he were on earth. Since there are priests. There are. There are priests. And what do those priests do? They offer gifts according to the law. Okay. Here's why I'm bringing this up. This letter was written during a time when the temple practices were still in full operation. So what does this tell us? Well, real quick, you might remember an important period of time uh, in which the Romans attack and sack and destroy Jerusalem, and they utterly obliterate the temple that's in Jerusalem. Remember that date? It's 70 AD. That's when it's to log. If you're a believer, just log that because it, it comes into play often, and especially in church history stuff. Sometimes biblically, it's really helpful to have that in mind. 70 AD, destruction of the temple. So what, is, what do we know then? This is written prior to that destruction because when that destruction comes, it is so absolute, so complete that the old covenant from 70 AD and on is officially extinct. This author is writing at a time when there are earthly priests operating while Jesus is the true high priest. Catch that? Earthly priests doing sacrifices, going to their earthly high priest at the same time that Jesus is in heaven as the ultimate, final, perfect high priest already finished his once-for-all sacrifice. So here's the question. How should we think about that? How should we think about sacrifices being offered at the same time that Jesus has finished his sacrifice and is in heaven? I want you to log this question. Okay, I'm not answering this today because I think we're going to get to the answer in the next couple of weeks. Log this question for yourself and ask, how, how did that work out? Because the old covenant was working, and now the new covenant is working, but what did that, what did that point look like? Okay, we're going we're gonna to get there. I want you to log this for now, because I think it will be helpful for us later. But what's important now is to see, ah, this author is telling his audience, you guys know the priests, and you know how they offer sacrifices all the time. And they're nodding along, yeah. Well, Jesus wouldn't even be able to do that. He wouldn't be qualified under that law because he's not a Levite. Going on to chapter, uh, verse 5. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So how much could Moses just wing it Probably not a lot. Did you know that in, the, in the, the creation of the tabernacle and in the plans given for the creation of the tabernacle, they specified, it was specified for them on God's behalf, how many tent pegs to use, what material they should make the, the curtains out of, how many of those they should have, how wide they should spread, how they should be held in place, what exactly the pieces of furnishing looks like inside, the colors of them, the thread kind, all of the stuff was specified. It's amazing how much detail you read when you look into those types of things. 
These Levites were told that they were supposed to build this tabernacle back in that day. Moses gave the instruction, received it from God. He gave the instruction to them. And they made this tabernacle, which was like a portable temple. It's the place that they were to have as the center of their worship. And that was, that was significant because the, the, it would have to be uh, uprooted and moved to the new place. And they'd pitch the tent in a new place. And then everyone would set up around it. And then when they had to move to a new location, they'd tear it down and they'd bring it over. And there was very specific ritual as to how that had to be done until they entered into the promised land, had a firm grip on Jerusalem, and God permitted them to build a permanent replacement for that, that tent that once traveled around. But these priests who are serving in the day of these Hebrews, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. A copy. And that's why it cites this verse from the Old Testament because it says that he was given the pattern there's a pattern. Well, what's the original from which the pattern? It's like a template. Well, what's the original one? The original one is heaven. They serve as a copy because there's a real one in heaven. That's a copy of the heavenly things. Now, this doesn't mean that we must imagine physical buildings in heaven that look the same as the tabernacle on earth. I don't think that's what's in mind here. Because even the heavenly visions that are recorded in Scripture, for example, don't indicate that kind of look at all. But simply that these are heavenly realities being represented in the earthly tabernacle, in the earthly temple. The design of the earthly temple was derived from its heavenly original. So let me just make two points about this. Two things we can take from, from this idea. First, the Old Testament system of worship was meaningful. It meant to point to something bigger. It echoed something greater. Have you ever read through those instructions in the Old Testament? Have you ever been through those detailed descriptions of how exactly to craft the parts and pieces? And you're like, my goodness, the detail of this. Those are not arbitrary. Every single instruction was given with a purpose. So for us, what do we take out of this? Read our Old Testament, Christians. Read it. It's there for a reason. And even the things that don't exist anymore. We don't have an earthly tabernacle anymore. We don't have an earthly temple anymore. Jesus is our temple now. We, as the body of Christ, are called the temple in the New Testament. So does that have no meaning? Of course it has meaning. Even some meaning that perhaps won't be clear to us until the day we see him face to face. So first, the Old Testament system of worship was meaningful. Look at your Old Testaments. Read your Bibles. Those passages matter. They're there for a reason, even when we can't understand why. Second, this necessarily and permanently changes the way God's people worship. This necessarily and permanently changes the way God's people worship. Since the entire system of worship was bound up in these forms, now that the forms are gone, our methods of worship have been remade. We worship the same God, yes and amen. We worship him according to his rules and not ours. Yes and amen. But the way we worship today will necessarily look different. This is quickly evidenced by the fact that you have never and ought never sacrifice an animal to God. You ought never bring the death of something in honor to God. Why? 
Because there already has been a once and for all final complete sacrifice, a final death of something, and any addition to that is saying his wasn't enough. Tracking? Our methods of worship today are entirely revolving around the person and work of Jesus. We don't need a physical temple anymore because Jesus is our temple. We don't need priests anymore because Jesus is our priest. We don't need prophets anymore because Jesus is our prophet. We don't need blood sacrifices anymore because Jesus is our final blood sacrifice. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. This verse is the pivot point of this section of Hebrews. This takes us from what has been being said to something fresh, built upon what's already been said. So the last five verses were kind of a summary of the author's previous argument. That's why he said, now the point we are making is. That's why he starts it that way. Because we've been making this case that Jesus is greater in supremacy than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than any high priest that has come before him. All that's summarized already in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When we get to verse 6, we pivot. Here, the author points to the nature of the covenant which Jesus mediates. Covenant. I introduced the thought of covenant already in the sermon, but I want you to try to imagine for yourself, when I say that word, um, what kind of covenant might you have with other people in your life or another person? First one that came to my mind was marriage. This is a place that we still kind of use that word. That word is not used quite as often in, in lots of other places, but marriage is a good example of a covenant. And imagine what takes place at a wedding ceremony. Two people enter into a marriage covenant by making promises to each other. You make a vow. Now that vow includes things like love, faithfulness, perseverance. So multiple promises are packed into a single covenant. That's what's taking place in a, in a marriage vows. When you think about your vows, you might think about the fact that there's multiple pieces of that, multiple promises. This is why you can say it's that the new covenant is enacted on better promises. There's multiple promises in the new covenant, just like there's multiple promises in the old. And the promises in the new covenant are better. They are better than the promises of the old covenant. I want you to think about that old covenant. I want you to think about Moses in his day. God made this covenant between himself and Israel at Sinai. And in that covenant, there were a variety of promises, weren't there? God promised to be their God. He promised that they would be his people. He promised that he would establish them as a nation. He promised that he would give them victory over their enemies, that he would persist them, persevere, preserve them in the promised land. He promised that their living would be fruitful, that their, the rains would come on their lands, and that they would, they would have a fruitful harvest. They'd be watched over and cared over if, if they did not break the covenant. This old covenant was most certainly conditional. And so look at what the author says. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, a religious service that is as much more excellent than the old 
as the covenant he mediates is better. So, right? We've been seeing him operating in the role of high priest, and he's been compared with the merely human, sinful, flawed high priests, right? And he's saying, not only have we already established that Jesus in his character, in his nature, in who he is, is better in every way than these high priests, but now the author's making it clear that even the functional ministry that they performed was less, was not as good as the better, more excellent service that Jesus provides now in the new covenant. And when you use words like this, like better, you, better and worse, you need to be really careful. Let the Bible speak for you. For us to grab two things out of the Bible and say one thing is better than the other, we want to be really careful to make sure that's what the Bible is saying and not just what I'm saying. And so look again at places like Hebrews 7.22, which says that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Better covenant. The new covenant, quite simply, it's just better than the old it is better. And what we're going to explore in the upcoming weeks is that the new covenant is better in every way. There is no way in which the old covenant is better. We don't go, man, this new covenant's awesome, isn't it? But yeah, don't you remember how great it used to be with that one thing? There are no features, there are no amenities of the old covenant that we can look back on and wish for. Because the new covenant is better than all. And here, what it says about that is that it's enacted on better promises. The promises of the new covenant are better. They are better than the promises of the old covenant. And what are those promises? We're not going to get into that today. Because that's going to pick up on the next handful of verses, 7 through 12, where the author is going to cite Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. Remember, he doesn't appeal to his own authority. The author is always saying, don't trust me, look at your Bible. And he's going to quote their Bible again, Jeremiah 31, to show some of those promises and what makes them so much better. But among other things, this should remind us that Jesus did not come, listen carefully to this, Jesus did not come to be a minister under the old covenant. Listen carefully to that. Jesus did not come to be a minister under the old covenant. Yes, he lived under the old covenant. Yes, he had to obey and abide by all the precepts of the old covenant. Absolutely, he had to, as an Israelite, not as a priest. He operated as an Israelite, a citizen of Israel, not one who had a priesthood. This is really important for us. Because he is not merely a better version of Aaron. He's not merely a better version of Caiaphas, Ananias. He's not just a better version of whichever, take your pick, Old Testament great high priest who is sinful and flawed. He's not just the better version of it. Sometimes you have to take in your car because there's something wrong. And, and you find, this is the hope, right? That there's this one piece that's broken. They can take out that piece and replace it with a brand new one. And the car's going to run smooth and work just fine for a while. That's the hope when you bring in a vehicle, right? That's not the trade from the old covenant to the new. It's not that we took out one piece and then imported the right one back in. Because the problem with the old covenant was not merely that we just had a sinful great high priest. The problem with the old covenant is that everyone broke it. 
We use these amazing, beautiful verses in the New Testament that, that remind us of our sinfulness, which shows us again the love of God. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think of Romans 3.10. No one is righteous, no, not one. And Paul goes into a whole list in Romans 3 of of all these ways that we've fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know where he gets those? The Old Testament. The people were given the law, they did not live righteously and according to it. Every single one of the Israelites broke in the covenant. Every one. They were covenant breakers, is what they were. They were spiritual idolaters, spiritual adulterers, spiritual lawbreakers. Now, you might be wondering, why am I making a big deal about this? And this is, I want to answer this in closing. I'm going to answer this with some further questions. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just ordain that Jesus would be born into the line of Levi? Why not, if the point is to try to make it clear here that Jesus is great high priest, why not just be a son of the high priest that does it better than his father, perfectly. Why not that? Hmm. Why was Jesus' blood not sprinkled on the mercy seat? You know that's how the atonement would work, right? Day of atonement, sacrifices would be made before the people. They'd send out the scapegoat. They'd take the one sacrifice that was to be for all the people after the high priest had sacrificed for himself and his household. He'd take that blood, sprinkle it on the people, come back inside, and what would he do with the blood? He'd sprinkle it on the throne of God, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. He would do that. And that's the point at which it would ratify that day of atonement. Now that atonement is atoning for your sins. This has been poured out before God, before the Lord. Why was Jesus' blood not poured out on the mercy seat? How about this one? Why was Jesus not crucified on the Day of Atonement? Isn't that, isn't that the comparison we often make as Christians all the time? Which is, I think we can. But Jesus, as the perfect atoning sacrifice, and if you were to say, well, show me in the Old Testament where this perfect atoning sacrifice would go, what passages would you go to? The Day of Atonement sacrifices are likely where you'd go to. Where the whole body of, of, of Israelites would gather together, acknowledge their sins, they would, they would commit to this sacrifice, and when would they do this? On the Day of Atonement, that their sins would be forgiven. Why was Jesus killed not on that day, but on the Day of Passover? Which was also another important festival, but was not the one. It was not the one that atoned for sins for the corporate people. Why? Because all of those old covenant things were merely shadows of something greater. Jesus did not come to reestablish us under the old covenant. He came to fulfill it. You get that? Jesus didn't come to bring us back underneath what we always had a hard time managing. He didn't come back to make it possible for us to do all the things that were necessary in the law. He didn't come back to right all the wrongs of the kings and to be the better version of a high priest. He didn't come back just to do that. He came to fulfill all of the old covenant. Gone. He established a new one. I've actually heard modern Jews object that Jesus could not be the high priest because among other missing qualifications, he never even entered into the temple. Yes, he did. He entered into the real one. And that's the point. Jesus did not come to the replica. He came to establish a new covenant in his blood, not in the bulls and goats. 
Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant by establishing a new one. And you and I are no longer under that covenant of law. We're no longer under that covenant of works, but under a covenant of grace. If you have faith in Jesus alone for salvation, you are not under that covenant any longer. You are in a new one, the new covenant of grace. Judaism and the days of the law are done. The days of the Old Testament law have been fulfilled and completed in Jesus. But the human heart is so prone to drift back to this way of thinking. We crave temples and laws and priesthoods and prophets, and that's why you can find these things in virtually every major religion in the world. Temples, physical temples, priests, actual people who call themselves priests, sacrifices, oftentimes bloody sacrifices, sometimes symbolic. Prophets, why do you find these things? Because we are so prone to them. It's like our hearts draw us back down into this old covenant And this is why it's so critical for us to acknowledge as believers that sometimes even in us, have you ever had that impulse? Like when you're just not living rightly, you've, you've realized in your heart and your mind you've been convicted of a sin or of a, of, a, of a series of sins or a category of issue in your life. And sometimes as Christians, we go, I know how to fix this. Just start doing a lot of good things. Have you ever had that impulse? Have you ever had the impulse to do that kind of thing as a, as a way to try to kind of even the scales out a little bit? Oh, goodness, those types of things are so built into us. We ought not be surprised for the rest of our days to see temples built and erected and, and, uh, and, and priesthoods and prophets and all these types of things that are an attempt to reestablish a kind of old covenant to make peace with God. But as believers, we must acknowledge that it's been fulfilled, satisfied entirely in Jesus. So here's the question. How then ought we as new covenant believers relate to the old covenant? Isn't that the big question? Wait a second, Rich. You're telling me it's, you're telling me it's fulfilled? Yeah, not my words, the Bible. You're telling me it's obsolete? Yes, that's what it says. It's obsolete because of the new covenant. Well, then how do we relate to the old covenant? And that's what I hope we're going to spend time on the upcoming weeks as we walk through this. Maybe, and hopefully now I've piqued your interest enough in what's going down here to see how important it is for us to acknowledge and understand the way that this author talks about old and new for us to get our minds right about this. I'd ask for you to consider thinking strongly about this, praying through this, reading this ahead of me. Stay ahead of me looking at these passages before we get there together as a church so we can be best served by Hebrews 8 through 10. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so grateful that you have done such a great and mighty work through sending your perfect son to this earth to live a flawless, beautiful, perfect, sinless life that not only would he be the perfect sacrifice, but that he would be the perfect sacrificer. And that, Father, even beyond that, he is now the one through whom you speak to us and mediate all of your relationship to us. Father, through Jesus, we can have access to you. We are so grateful for this truth. Help us to understand it more clearly. Help us to love the Old Testament. Help us to pick up the mantle of the, uh, of the commands of Jesus to honor what he has commanded for us to do. Help us to never forsake the commandments of your word, but to understand them rightly. Lord, help for every believer to daily be reminded by the gospel that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by the works of the only one who did them all perfectly. Jesus. Father, help us to believe in your son. Help us to acknowledge him in every day of our lives. 
Help us to not make decisions. Help us to not organize our day or our weeks or even our years around anything other than gospel-centered truth. Lord, help us to be quick to share this with others. Help us to be quick to, to proclaim the rescuing salvation of Jesus from under a covenant of works that no man can perform, that we may be saved by grace through faith. We love you and we praise you for these truths in Jesus' good name, amen.